Welcome to King's River Life's Mystery Rats Maze podcast, where we share with you mystery short stories and first chapters of mystery novels read by local actors. This episode features the mystery short story, Still Life, by Lori Rader Day. It's read by local actor Cha Yang. Still Life was published in 2017 in Deadlier, 100 of the best crime stories written by women and selected by Sophie Hanna. Lori Rader Day wrote Still Life in 2008 on a bit of a dare. The magazine Time Out Chicago was having a short story contest for crime fiction, and she wrote short fiction but had never considered what a crime short story might look like. But she had been circling around a story she wasn't sure she could tell, based on a real figure in Chicago history. Jun Fujita was a Japanese national who lived in Chicago from the 1910s to his death. A professional news photographer who had caught some of Chicago's most enduring images. The 1915 Eastland disaster. The 1919 race riots. The 1924 trial of the young murderers Leopold and Loeb, the 1929 St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Fujita had been on the scene at all the biggest moments of Chicago history. Lori couldn't help imagining Fujita standing out among the crowds of other photojournalists. As a foreigner, an outsider in many ways whose work made him known then and lives as his legacy now. The real Jun Fujita's life was so big, so wide and ranging, it would never fit into one short story. But it was a runner-up in that contest. And Lori has gone on to a life of crime fiction. February 14th, 1929. A photograph could never tell the entire story. How the chill of the garage stone floor seeped through the bottoms of our shoes into our bones. How the room smelled of raw meat and tin, like a storage locker of beef down in back of the yards in the middle of winter, only the cold keeping the stench at bay. The same principle was at work here on Clark Street. Of course, except the butchering had been of men. Camera stand over my shoulder, I followed an officer into the high-ceiling garage past men in uniforms, men in hats and coats, men with notebooks, cameras, and grave faces. I recognized photographers from the Daily News and the Daily Tribune, among others. We nodded to one another and looked away. Up against a white brick wall at the back of the garage lay six corpses. One man, still breathing, had been taken to the hospital. As the officer led me through the room towards the bodies, I heard another officer talking about this last man as though he too were already dead. Seven, then. Seven dead in a single morning. My escort, a young officer in a uniform still deep blue, still crisp at the seams, directed me towards a spot several feet from the bodies, next to a dusty ford. There was a dog, he said. His breath formed quick clouds as he spoke. A dog howling when the boys got here. Just the dog, the only living thing in the place. 
He scratched at the side of his face until a pink welt rose on his cheek. I backed up to the car and telescoped the stand to the height of my chin. I kept my gloves on. I heard the dog belonged to the mechanic. The officer continued, looking over his shoulder at the dead. He didn't have to tell me which was the mechanic. Five were career men, the sort often found in their own cars with bloody trails from holes put in their heads. They wore suits and vests, pocket watches still in place. They had worn wool overcoats. Chicago's winter sent a chill that seemed to come from within, as though inside the human body was a hollow space that answered when the bitter wind bit the skin. The men had kept their great coats wrapped around them and now sprawled in them, all but the mechanic who wore his overalls and worn boots. He had been working, only working as I was now. But he laid side by side with the rest of them. His head opened with a bullet and the contents of his skull spilled onto the hard floor. Beside the new void at his temple, a buff tan hat meant for another's head rested on its side, empty. Inside the bucket of the empty hat laid a poem. I worked in images, on film for the post, of course, but for myself in poetry. In spare words committed to paper with a thin thread of ink that reminded me of the artists back home in Hiroshima. As I worked, as I rode the train, as I sat down to my dinner table in my basement apartment and told Florence all the untidy and foolish things I had seen that day, as I trampled around the city, in my mind, I was trimming the full and vibrant colors and smell into a bare branch with a single blossom, a poem. In my desk at home, I kept the results of my life's art, a book of my slim poems and loose sheets of those I still labored to finish. In another drawer, I stored prints of particular photos of mine from the post, a life's work, which is not the same as a life's art. The empty hat in the garage was a poem that I did not wish to write. I nodded to the officer to step to the side. He blinked at the camera and shifted to my elbow. Does it look any better from there? He said. The same. Is this the worst you ever saw, Togo? Every Japanese man was Togo, so I was Togo. The officers knew me that way, even the ones I did not know. The criminals knew me, even the ones I did not want to know me. If El Capone himself walked in to take credit for this day, he would greet me as Togo. I was the only Japanese news photographer in the city, but one would believe the only Japanese man in the country from how easily everyone called me by name. Was it the worst I seen? I turned to the camera, viewing the scene anew. Four men lay in a row, as though they had been tucked into a large bed. One slept at their feet, face down, the last hunched on his knees at a round-backed wooden chair. Blood ran toward the center of the room. Later that day, when I returned to the newsroom, I would release the images from the machine in my hands, like a dragon from a cage. The city would see the blood, black, 
and no one would remember that someone, call him Togo or call him Fujita, the name will not be printed, had stood in the dust of men's bones to face the dragon so that they did not have to. This was not the worst I had seen. In fifteen I had stood on the side of the Eastland, a ship overturned in the Chicago River. My camera found a fireman carrying a dead child up from the waters, one of hundreds of corpses that day, men, women, and children, whole families. This was the worst, and the worst of it all was how innocent I had been, how eager to take pictures, how willing to crawl upon the sideways ship while everyone else crawled off. My camera jostled as the young officer bumped my arm, trying to see what I could see through the camera. He breathed his cabbage breath into my neck. Cabbage, even at this early hour. Sir, I said. He stood back. The Tribune was here first, he said. The Tribune pays its many photographers enough to buy cars, and also gas to fill the tanks. The men from the Tribune had finished with the crime scene but were nearby, already slipping cigarettes to uniforms for information. I had taken the elevated to the scene, but I will not rush only to keep up with the Tribune men. Photography was not poetry, but there was still dignity to a job well done. I studied the light falling across the floor, the mechanic's face and brains. In the corner, the body kneeling at the chair looked as though he had been shot praying. And, I said, the Tribune has the money to build the castle in which their photo men put up their feet after doing one-fifth the day's work I do. Kings, every last one of them. I let my camera droop in my arms. I couldn't get it all. The six bodies, the white wall chipped away by a spray of bullets, the blood running in revlets from the backs of their heads toward my feet, the empty hat. If I had a larger lens, or more room to back up, I might show it as it really was. I pressed flat against the car, but it was no use. Where did the Tribune photographer stand? Uh, never mind, I will find a better place. At the front of the garage, a door opened and a woman's voice reached out and turned my head. At once I thought of Florence, but of course it was not her. The door closed and the voice was clipped to silence. The officer chewed at a fingernail and watched a knot of his fellows just inside the door. What does she say? I said. He dropped his hand from his mouth. Police business. He turned back to me, squared his shoulders. Such a young one that I remembered, shaking my head, what it had meant to be so young. To be released upon the world. I have left Japan at sixteen to be free of everything Hiroshima held for me. Failed romance and humiliation being the biggest part, but I will not speak of it. And found myself, after a bit of wondering, here with a camera in my hands. Nearly thirty years had gone. I hardly remembered the streets I once walked every day. I let the camera rest heavily on my shoulder 
and flapped at the pockets of my coat for a cigarette. The match offered a brief glow, a brief warmth. The flash of a match head burning. Here, also, a poem lived in each flare and in each tiny death that followed. What is your name, officer? He glanced uneasily at the bodies. I can't tell you anything. I wonder what he thought he knew. Did he know, for instance, what had happened to that dog they had found this morning? I didn't know, but I could suppose. One more bullet in a day filled with bullets. One more body in a day stacked high with bodies. I waved the cigarette in the air between us. Not for the papers. What do the men call you? McCormick. They call me something else. Ah, this I understood. Are you related to the newspaper men then? I wouldn't be standing here freezing my ass off with you if I was one of them rich ones, would I? His own name seemed to remind him that he stood in a cold situation in a cold town. I smoked, nodding as though the brat had said something worth considering. I said, I believe that woman at the door said that the men she saw leaving this place with guns wore police uniforms. The boy paled and looked away. I followed his eyes towards the other officers, who shuffled their feet and discussed matters in low voices. Occasionally, one of them broke away to peer at the bodies. I wonder what they saw that I could not. McCormick said nothing. His mouth tightened into a straight line. An interesting turn of events, isn't it, Officer McCormick? I gestured towards the group of police. Which one do you suspect? He frowned. You can't report what she said. I'm not a reporter. May I look for a better place to shoot? Officer McCormick blinked at the camera again. Shoot? Shoot the film. I will look. You have much to do. I gave a bit of a bow, the sort of thing Americans seem to expect, hitched the equipment onto my back, and edged past the boy in the trunk of the car. When I glanced back, Officer McCormick stood in the same place, nothing to do, chewing on his fingers. Stay away from the... He gestured toward the blood on the floor. Of course. I had already decided that where I needed to be was on top of the car. I would probably find footprints from the Tribune man who had been there before me, but blast it, post-reader needed to see this spectacle too. Arriving to their dinner tables this evening, our gentlemen would unfold their post to find the city under fire, and their stomachs turned. Our ladies would have already seen, or perhaps they would have tried not to see. They would have shielded their children's eyes fed them dinner early, and sent them up to bed so that when father came home, the matter could be openly discussed. This was in other households. In mine, Florence would have read the paper front to back before I arrived. She would have a drink ready for me, and there being no children, and in fact, no marriage, we would discuss the massacre up and down. How the city was overrun by hoodlums and opportunistic beasts, and how one never knew who might be a cousin or godson to one of them. Keep clear of it, June.
Florence would advise. Of course, I would reply. But not everyone could steer clear from it. How could I stay out of the picture when, as soon as someone was shot in the street, I came along on the elevated to lean a camera down into the man's missing face? My job made it difficult for me to lead the quiet life I desired. In nineteen, I had gone out to cover the riots on the south side. A black man swimming at the black beach had ventured across an invisible line in the water into the white area, and another man, need I said he was white, threw a rock and caused the black man to drown. In the neighborhoods nearby, men of both colors started fires, beat and shot one another. I took my camera to the streets, the most conspicuous of witnesses. In the drawer of my work at home, there was now a print of a black man, unnamed, lying dead in an alley. I took this photo. Also in the drawer was a print of some uniformed militia stopping men on the street for the simple blackness of their skin. I took this photo. Sometimes in the evenings. I accepted the drink from Florence, and instead of going to the dinner table, went to the desk. Reading my poems again, I would be greeted as if by old friends, friends as dear to me as Florence's lovely lily face. But when I reviewed the photographs, I was ill at ease. I had not shot myself standing in these scenes, but I was there nonetheless. I am there in the alley with that man killed for the color given to him by nature, I whose skin was also not white. I am there on the street with the man who reigned for walking to work or to the store, I who had also been questioned for being on the street on that day, I who drew stares from walking down any street on any day with my dear Florence's pale arm through my brown one, I was an imperfect witness to the events of my city. Every image I created failed. Every image I created reflected back to me what I was, and what I was not. Perhaps others. Could read the impersonal news from my photos. I only saw that I was there, off to the side, out of frame. I saw it, but no one else did. No one would remember. In the garage, I slid my camera onto the flat roof of the Ford. I used the hub over the wheel to propel myself up onto the car. At once, I knew I had found the right location. I brought myself and the camera upright and quickly set about framing the situation before anyone could tell me to get down. Togo, the young officer said, his voice quiet. He tapped the toe of my shoe. I don't think you ought to be up there. Do you have a girl, Officer McCormick? He turned his face up to me, eyebrows furrowed. I turned to the camera. At last, satisfied by how the room opened up, how the six men's body can be singled out, how the poor mechanic's face—he had been a good-looking man, and certainly someone had loved him—looked up from the floor. What does that have to do with the price of tea? And find yourself a girl, Officer McCormick. 
No, not a girl, a woman. A woman of passions and intellect with whom you can pass the days of your life. Also find yourself an art so that your hours are not empty, so that your life is full, no matter how it ends or when. The boy glanced at the bodies, then away. He left me to my work. In a few minutes, I had captured the scene and was done. Next, I would drag my camera to all the dank corners of the garage and burn more images. And then, once the police forced me and my fellows out the door, I would climb another car outside. Or perhaps find a tenant at home in a building across the street and lean my camera out her window. And then back to the train and down to the post in time for the evening's deadline. This harsh day would be done soon enough and I might find myself at home, at my desk. Perhaps there were a few words yet to be written in the thin black ink. Perhaps I could crawl into the dead man's empty hat and have something, however small, to say. Across the garage I saw a bustle. One of the men from the Tribune was climbing atop another car. A second man passed the camera up to him. From the front of the garage, two more with equipment raced to join him and soon the top of the other car held all three men with their cameras turned to the bodies. I leaned into my own camera and took one last image of the room. The photo men hang over the bloody floor like martyrs in stained glass looking down from a cathedral window. The Tribune man raised his flash bulb into the air. In the pop of the bright light lived a poem, a handful of words about quick life and quick death. If only I could write it, if only I can say with certainty which emotions rose within the hollow space in my body when I realized that in their images, in all of their images, it was I who would be standing over the dead men. It was I who would be the only living thing in the place. This reading of Still Life was produced by Kings River Life and directed by Lori Lewis Ham. You can learn more about the author on her website, lauriraiderday.com. Our theme song, The Blues, was written and played by Kevin Memley. Check out Kings River Life magazine's websites for more mystery, local theater, animal rescue, and so much more. kingsriverlife.com and krlnews.com. Now we'll be back next time with another mystery short story or mystery first chapter. Subscribe to our podcast to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter to get special interviews with the authors of the podcast stories. And follow us on Twitter to keep up with everything KRL at Kings River Life. If you enjoy this episode, please rate or review it as this helps make us easier for others to find. Now, if you'd like to help support this podcast and Kings River Life financially and get some fun perks, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash kingsriverlife. Until next time, this is your announcer, Jim Tuck, wishing you a life full of mysteries.